0: So here goes. Thank you very much for having me. Um, This is my uh, first talk over Zoom as a speaker. Um, So I hope everything goes uh, smoothly with the technology. But if it doesn't, I uh, understand that Holly put um, a PDF of the slides um, and also a slightly revised version of the paper, which fills in, well, which provides complete references for uh, everything I'll be sliding in the slides, both in the chat session. So if we get cut off, um, slides Better version of the talk, and I hope the paper, if you care to read it, better version of the slides. Okay, so with that out of the way, um, and now um, possible issue with arrow key already? No, good. Um, Okay, so as uh, I hope everyone has already figured out. This talk is about the so-called Frege-Hilbert controversy and one of its headline issues, whether consistency implies existence in mathematics. I think it's fair to say this is indeed a generalist subject um, in philosophy of mathematics in the latter half of the 20th century. It is, for instance, a staple of most undergraduate philosophy of math classes, and there is a large secondary philosophical literature devoted to it. I'm not gonna be engaging so much uh, of that today, but if anyone would like waypoints, um, I think uh, at least my own thoughts on uh, Frege's orientation in this setting um, pretty much agree with what uh, Patty Blanchette has written on the issue and with respect to Hilbert pretty much agree with what Michael Hallett uh, has uh, written on the issue. Um, my own take on this is that the Frege-Hilbert controversy and its titular question, whether consistency implies existence, end up anticipating a lot of what I think probably should be called specialist results in mathematical logic. Um, specialists in the sense that they're known, perhaps in some instances, largely to specialists, not all of them. but. Um, that you can tell a fairly compelling story that suggests that the origin of the results, um, their motivation and how people came to the proofs um, can all be all traced back um, in many instances to the Frege-Hilbert controversy. And you know, further, my own take one step further that a lot of the stuff just isn't adequately accounted for in the secondary literature. So that's what I'm hoping to contribute to. Um, okay, but then big spoiler um, uh, on the view for which I will be advocating, because this is a dozen deal, uh, indeed entail existence and this is shown mathematically by Gödel's completeness theorem um, and certain refinements thereof. Um, also think that this is the view that if not necessarily Hilbert, definitely his protege Paul Bernays uh, came to have. Um, by the midpoint in his career. So um, before entering the thicket or the long grass or whatever one says, um, I just also wanna point out here that in the background of this talk or with the subject, uh, more generally, I mean, the um, consistency implies existence slogan, slogan, there is another sort of more generalist topic in contemporary analytic philosophy, I think very nearby, and that is whether uh, Consistency as uh, mathematically defines, in other words, the non-derivability of uh, a contradiction from axioms should be replaced with some other notion that various authors have, for instance, uh, termed coherence or conceivability as a con- uh, criterion of existence. Um, I wanna stress before getting underway that uh, the answer that Frege and Hilbert would have given to this question is uh, definitely no. Um, although they disagreed about what was required to demonstrate Um, consistency. They both agreed that consistency was ultimately a formal uh, property, syntactic property of deductive systems. Um, On the other hand, we find a number of uh, contemporary theorists um, for various reasons um, suggesting that uh, consistency uh, should be replaced with some other standard notion for various reasons. Um, My own take on this is that these uh, non-mathematical prosers are highly problematic for uh, their own particular reasons. Um, I'm not going to I'll come back, time permitting, to talk about that just a little bit at the end with Director Piro's notion of coherence. Um, I think there are a number of uh, issues in the general vicinity that um, perhaps could be discussed, like whether we can give uh, Chrysler-style squeezing arguments um, for these other notions. And ultimately, I think there are some interesting connections here in the background also between computational complexity theory, impossible worlds, and logical omniscience, Um, There are a few slides of that in the extra material uh, at the end as a bonus, but I probably won't get to that. Okay, now commencing um, really with the historical contextualization, Um, right. Uh, so, one slide summarizing a whole bunch of fairly dense and rich stuff um, with respect to the uh, Frederick Hilbert controversy in its original historical setting. So here goes. In 1899, uh, Hilbert published a uh, monograph of just over 100 pages um, called the Grundlagen der Geometrie. Uh, it was part originally of a festschrift for Gauss and Weber. It was based on lectures in uh, geometry that he'd been giving, sort of his graduate courses in Göttingen in the 1890s. Some of uh, what history tells us are its big contributions are as follows. It gives, um, by the standards of the times, but I think really almost by contemporary standards as well, rigorous axiomizations of various uh, systems of uh, Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry. It also gives rigorous, even by contemporary standards, um, consistency proofs uh, for some of the systems, like the the base system, but then also independence proofs, such as, for instance, famously, the independence of uh, the parallel postulate from the other Euclidean axioms. Perhaps most significantly, what history records is that um, one of Hilbert's big contributions in the Grand geometry was his application of proto model theoretic techniques, um, in particular uh, varying domains between models and reinterpreting the basic non logical notions of points, lines, and uh, planes, incidence in terms of real numbers and algebraic relations defined in real numbers. Okay, so then. Uh, Right, Hilbert, at this time, I believe 37 years of age, um, sort of already an international mathematical superstar, had uh, recently assumed this important professorship in Gottingen. Uh, Frege, uh, 14 years his senior um, in uh, in between the two volumes of the Grand Gazette so at the somewhat more provincial institution in Jena. Um, Frega gets a copy of a preprint of uh, or at least that's what the history suggests, of the Grundlagen geometry, and then writes to Hilbert in Gotingen. Um, the most important letters are uh, I believe, exchanged between um December 27th and maybe January 1899 and January 6th. Uh uh, in 1900. Um, so uh, one of the things the Frege-Hilbert controversy testifies to is the efficiency of the German post at that time. But um, in any event, um, to just very quickly remind you of what Frege and Hilbert were disagreeing about in their exchange of letters, um, right, uh, this can be summarized by saying that Frege was a proponent of what one might call the traditional view, that geometry was about space. So points, lines, and planes um, conceived as a uh, Spatial notions, um, and that uh, axioms like we find in uh, Euclid uh, express what he would have uh, called true thoughts about the spatial notions. So for him, axioms have to be true, and they're also more proposition-like than they are sentence-like, so they're non-linguistic, and they're also non-reinterpretable. Um, Hilbert, really the flip side of all of this stuff. Um, so for Hilbert, um, right, representing what you might call the modern view, geometry is the study of arbitrary systems of objects and relations, satisfying certain sets of geometric axioms. I mean, famously, of course, Hilbert re- uh, recorded as saying, rather than points, lines, and planes, we might as well be talking about table chairs and beer mugs. The example that he actually uses in the correspondence with Frege, perhaps even a bit more colorful than that, sort of points, lines, and planes, love, law, and chimney sweep. Um, on Hilbert's views, uh, axioms are linguistic, they're sentences, and uh, they're reinterpretable, right, when we move from one domain to the other, as he actually did in his consistency and independence proofs. Okay, so um, the two famous quotes that you were uh, expecting um, just to uh, set the scene very quickly, right, Frege and the uh, traditional view, um, I call axioms propositions that are true, but are not proved because our knowledge of them flows from a source, uh, sorry, uh, are not proved because our knowledge of them flows from a source very different from the logical source, a source which might be called spatial intuition, and here's right the famous quote or tagline, from the truth of the axioms as follows well that they do not contradict one another, there is uh, therefore no need for another proof, Right. OK. So Hilbert and uh, the modern view. You write, from the truths of the axioms, it follows that they do not contradict one another. I found it very interesting to read this in your this sentence in your letter. For as long as I have been thinking, writing and lecturing on these things, I have been saying the exact reverse. If the arbitrary axioms do not contradict one another with all of their consequences, then they are true, and the things defined by the axioms exist. This, for me, is the criterion of truth and independence. Um, very quick note here. Um, when we do see the word true here, um, um, in uh, the famous quote from Hilbert, um, the context of this suggests very clearly that Hilbert was talking about what we would now refer to as truth in a structure and not what philosophers like to call truth simpliciter. In fact, I'll read you a quote later on where it's the truth that is left out, so don't get hung up on the true, just uh, take this to be the locus classicus of the slogan consistency implies existence. Okay, one more um, relatively famous quote, which is gonna be more germane to what I'm actually going to be talking about, the main part of the talk. Um, so Frege, if you recall, didn't wasn't satisfied with uh, Hilbert's consistency and existence proofs, um, in particular, because he thought that Frege was sinning by reinterpreting the intrinsically spatial notions of point, signs, and planes, and in terms of real numbers and algebraically defined relations uh, on real numbers. But another thing he was really on about was that, there was only one way of demonstrating the consistency, the deductive consistency of a set of axioms. Even though consistency is defined inductively, the only way of uh, demonstrating existence, according to Frego, was to exhibit a model to give what we would now for it as a model theoretic consistency proof. So uh, here's a quote from the correspondence illustrating this what means have we of demonstrating that certain requirements do not contradict one another the only means i know of is this to point to an object that has all the properties to give a case where all those requirements are satisfied it does not seem possible to demonstrate the lack of contradiction in any other way okay So, right, um, it's marking time for many of us. You, of course, right, are marking my talk and you wanna know what my thesis statement is. So, uh, here it is, it's tripartite, um, right? Uh, Thesis one, the Frege-Hilbert controversy motivates in a very specific way um, the proof the, the statement, proof, and reception of Gödel's completeness theorem. Thesis two: Frege was correct in a particular, precise, technical sense that I will get to, to maintain that demonstrating the consistency of a set of the axioms is as difficult as it can be. Thesis three: Hilbert was correct to maintain that demonstrating the existence of a model, given a, a, a model satisfying a set of axioms, is as easy as it can be, conditional on their deductive consistency. Okay, a couple quick uh, caveats to this. Um, thesis one, um, purely historical. I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. Um, I think it's in section two of the paper, right? And then illustrated ultimately by uh, right, uh, consideration of texts. Um, right, and also caveat with respect to uh, theses two and three. Um, I'm talking about uh, notions of ease and difficulty in mathematics. Um, In my mind, these are central but underexplored topics on the part of philosophers of mathematics. Um, I think they're quite interesting in their own right. Um, But for purposes of today, I'm essentially going to be taking a analysis of these notions off the shelf from computability theory um, and saying, you know, consistency is going to be difficult to demonstrate in the relevant computability sense uh, or and similarly existence, relatively easy to demonstrate given uh, consistency in the relevant computability theoretic sense. And for those of you who know what I'm talking about, the big spoiler here is that consistency is a so-called pi zero one notion, but in some sense, model existence or the existence of the diagram of a model satisfying the axioms is a delta zero two notion. So we'll come back to that. um, But my background goal in just saying all that stuff is perhaps to bring some of these notions um, uh, from computability theory and this other subject known as reverse mathematics that Helen uh, alluded to initially, um, possibly more to the table in discussions uh, in contemporary debates in philosophy of mathematics, perhaps, for instance, surrounding ontological commitment. Okay, so we're going to see this diagram again and again. This is um, right a depiction of the lower levels of so-called Queenie's arithmetical uh, hierarchy. Um, one of the uh, Main structures, the other being the Turing degrees that we use to measure uh, and compare the difficulty of mathematical problems, okay? Come back to that, but as I've said, consistency, a, a so-called positive one notion, model existence, in some sense, a delta zero two notion. Okay, so now, thesis by thesis argumentation, um, right? Thesis one, the Frege-Hilbert controversy motivated the formulation, proof, and perception of Gödel's completeness theorem. How? Well, fo- by following the uh, links in this graph between the sources, um, uh, of well, which I just wanna say uh, a very little bit about some of the central ones I've already mentioned, Grundlagen Geometry, but then really um, sort of a sub goal of mine is to uh, make vivid just how important um, Hilbert and Ackermann's uh, textbook, The Grundlagen der Thrischen Logic from 1928 um, is in the, um, really the history of everything in my neck of the woods. But in any event, um, so uh, here goes. Um, okay, what did Hilbert actually do in the Grimlog of New Geometry? Well, the following is a somewhat, well, I would say only slightly anachronistic, only slightly annotized uh, thumbnail summary. Um, so, one of his goals, and sort of, Notionally, his primary and initial goal is to just show that you could do what Euclid had done more formally, um, setting out axioms and giving proofs, right, such as, you know, base angles of an isosceles triangle or equal side angle side congruence, etc. Um, but, you know, updating the standards of rigor to his time right around the turn of the century, right, so... Um, Frege had written the Begriff Shift at this point, unclear to me whether Hilbert ever read the Begriff Shift. Um, He'd come up with his own formulation um, of first-order logic a little bit later, but in any event, not really a major anachronism to understand uh, the systems Hilbert presented in the Grundlagen Geometry as written down in a two-sorted first-order language with separate points for, no, sorry, separate sorts for points, A, B, and C, and for lines, L, L prime, L double prime, et cetera. And then, right, Uh, four uh, non-logical predicates, Um, in for incidence of a point on a line between, um, for uh, betweenness of points, B lying between A and C if they're collinear, congruence, um, congruence is a relation, or there are two congruence relations, the first of them holds between line segments, Uh, line segments are determined by pairs of points, so congruence is a uh, 4 area relation in points, and then another six-ary relation uh, for angle congruence, angles being determined by uh, triples of points. And then he also came up with his own organization of the axioms that are sufficient for driving some uh, of the propositions in Euclid, dividing them into five categories, incidence, order congruence, parallels, and continuity. Um, the sort of base theory over which he worked um, is that was composed of the first three, I'll call that HP for Hilbert planes. Um, Incidence, let's see, um, says that um, uh, two points determine a unique line. Um, order says things that, for instance, if B is between A and C, then uh, B is between C and A. Congruence says things like congruence of line segments is a transitive relation. Parallels, he took uh, the playfair form of uh, the parallel postulate. Uh, you give me a line and a point not lying on it, then there's a unique line uh, going through the point, not intersecting, or going mean through the given line. Um, So that's his basic setup, and then what he did was to essentially give model theoretic consistency and independence proofs for various sets of axioms. Lots of other axioms um, are considered, right? Um, So for instance, the Archimedean axiom, uh, the Dizard property, et cetera. So there's lots of mathematical detail being suppressed here, but perhaps the most basic things that are shown here that can be quickly summarized is that he showed that the base theory of Hilbert planes, the first three set of axioms, is satisfied in a Structure that we would now refer to as the minimal Pythagorean field um, by taking Q as an order field and then closing it under this Pythagorean operation. So, extraction of square roots so, of. Uh Uh, numbers of the form x squared plus y squared, and then, so that shows the base theory is consistent by contemporary standards, right, and then, for instance, you want to show that the um, parallel postulate is independent, well, then you're going to build a model, right, in which the base theory is satisfied, but the parallel postulate isn't. Uh, What Hilbert actually did um, is to show that the so-called Poincaré disk model, or also in another presentation, the Poincaré half-plane model, can be defined within a model of uh, the a model of the base theory, so we, in some sense, gave an inner model construction to show that the parallel postulate is independent of the other axioms. Okay, summary of the relevant bits of the Grundlagen of Geometry. Now, fast forwarding thirty years or almost thirty years into the future, this textbook, The Grundlagen of the Three Logic, I claim the first modern textbook in mathematical logic. Um, okay, uh, important to take into account. Uh, Some things that are done in here. Um, So again, this is really the first book you could look back at and say, "This is what I learned in my undergraduate logic class." There's a clear distinction between propositional, uh, first-order, and higher-order logic. Very nice, clear-cut distinction between syntax and semantics. Um, Also, um, I'm hoping that people can see when I use my mouse and highlight on the screen, Um, there really is a definition, a formal definition of derivability from axioms given there. In fact, the right, the gundogdu logic is really the origin of the so-called Hilbert axioms for first-order logic and the definition of a so-called Hilbert system. And so we get a formal definition of phi is derivable uh, from gamma, which is to say there exists a derivation, hypotheses amongst gamma conclusion phi, but then also a formal definition of deductive consistency of the following universal form where I'm highlighting in the middle of the screen, important for our purposes, it's a universal definition. Um, This is certainly something Hilbert recognized by the late teen or 20s, right? So I want to. Definitions say uh, gamma is a consistent set of sentences. Just in case, for all derivations, if their hypotheses are amongst the those of gamma, right, the set of axioms, then their conclusion is not your favorite contradiction, something of the form uh, p and not p. Say. There's also a proto-Tarskian definition of validity, uh, right, where they talk about domain variation and varying the interpretation of the predicates um, given. And then um, the statement of two, at that point, open mathematical questions, which go on to inspire additional work, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, this is also where the uh, so-called enscheindungs problem, or decision problem for first order logic, is formulated. What does that say? It asks whether there is a decision algorithm for deciding first order validity or an algorithm for deciding first order validity. You give me a formula of first order logic. Is it true in all models of the relevant signature? Um, That's formulated as an open problem. also, the completeness of the axioms, right, in the modern deductive sense of completeness is formulated. Um, the right, uh, initial way of thinking about this is asking the question, well, I've given you a semantic definition of validity. I've also given you a definition of the turnstile or derivability relation. Um, do they match up in the sense uh, of the fact, is the turnstile relation, as it were, strong enough to prove all of the validities? Um, but if you think about that in contraposed, then what that's really asking is um, if we've got a consistent set of axioms, um, does there exist a model that satisfies them? So it's really, in a way, asking this what con- uh, question about whether consistency implies existence. Um, final uh, really footnote to this is because, of course, we know the completeness theorem does hold, and soundness theorem does hold as well, provability and validity for first order of a uh, logical line. So the einstein uh, problem uh, ends up being equivalent to asking whether there's an algorithm for determining whether phi is derivable from a given, say, finite set of axioms. Okay. So um, that was the City of the Art in 1928 in Göttingen. Um So Hilbert, I'm now trying to advance in the slides and I am um, coming up against this problem that I was fearing that I would, that for some reason the um, arrow button has been repurposed and I apologize for the awkward delay. Um, page navigation, um, next page, okay. Um, uh, okay, so uh, one year in the future, Godel in Vienna, then a graduate student of Hans Hahn. Um uh, proves the open question that had been posed a year earlier by Hilbert and Ackerman in proving his completeness theorem. Those of you familiar with Gödel's dissertation know that the first section, I think maybe just three paragraphs, is really a masterwork in navigating between a whole lot of highly complex uh, issues in a super-efficient manner with a lot of stuff in the background. So I've sort sure of cherry-picked uh, the following quote out of this and suppressed a lot of other interesting stuff. is isn't so much immediately germane for our purposes. So So here goes. The main object of the following investigations is the proof of the completeness of the axiom system for what is called the restrictive functional uh, calculus of Hilbert and Bernays. Here, completeness is to mean that every valid formula expressible in the restricted functional calculus, that was his name at the time, or really Hilbert and Bernays' name for first order logic, can be derived from the axioms by a finite means of formal inferences. This assertion can easily be seen to be equivalent to the following, every consistent axiom system consisting of only first order formulas has a realization, in other words, a model. The solution to this question presents a theoretical completion of the usual method for proving consistency, for it would give us, right, if the answer is correct, and he actually does show that this is the case. For it would give us a guarantee that in every case this method leads to its goal. In other words, that one must be able to produce a contradiction or prove the consistency by means of a model. Okay, so usual method uh, for proving consistency. Um, pretty clear that what Gödel takes this to mean is the method of Hilbert's consistency proofs. In other words, right? You want to see the axioms are consistent. Um, construct a model in which they're satisfied. In some sense, right, at least it was the right kind of model that should have satisfied Frege too. Um, But whereas uh, Hilbert is just announcing something like consistency implies existence as a slogan or a bold claim, Gödel um, is actually taking himself to having having proved this mathematically, right? Um, So Gödel, it seems here, is actually presenting the completeness theorem as a proof that consistency implies existence. Okay. one or two more quick historical waypoints till we can move on to the main substance of the talk. Okay, so uh, fast-forwarding another 10 years uh, to 1939, the second volume of Hilbert and Bernays' sort of magnum opus, sort of the crowning achievement of the Hilbert program in its original, um, right, days in Göttingen. Um Okay, so a whole bunch of stuff is done in here, um, but one of the... Uh, Particular mathematical results that sort of lives on and has a significant, big significance after the Second World War that you can pick out of this is what ends up being called Bernays' Arithmetized Completeness Theorem. And uh, I'll tell you what that says in just a second, but in order to do that, I have to remind you that the language of first-order arithmetic is just this signature, right? Um, right uh, we've got first-order logic, and then we've got a constant symbol for zero, say less than symbol if we want it, and plus and times. Um, and the standard model of arithmetic is just this familiar structure, right, where those uh, symbols get their uh, standard familiar uh, interpretations, the so-called standard model of first-order arithmetic. What does the arithmetized completeness theorem says? say, sorry, it says, you give me a consistent set of first order, uh, formulas, um, right? Uh, suppose for simplicity that they just contain, um, some, uh, non-logical relation symbols, say P1 through PK. Um, there's your versions for with constant symbols and function symbols, too, but uh, somewhat more awkward to state. So you've got a set of uh, statements or axioms in a given first order language um, called it Gamma. It's got these uh, non-logical relation symbols in it. Um, so then what the arithmetized Completeness Theorem says is well, Gödel's proof had already showed us that in that case, um, not only is there a model of the consistent set of axioms, but there's a model with domain and the natural numbers. The additional juice in the Arithmetized Completeness Theorem is that um, not only is there a model, but there is a model that you get by interpreting the uh, non-logical symbols by particular formulas that you can write down in the language of first order arithmetic. So not only do you get a model with domain the natural numbers, so to speak, you get one, a definable model a model where all the uh, relations uh, uh, are definable in the language of first order sort of arithmetic. And then as you might guess, we can start asking questions about their complex, the complexity of their definitions. So um, if you follow me thus far, you'll realize that of course, what Gödel had shown is just a version of the downward lorenheim skolem theorem. If you've got a consistent set of statements in that has an infinite model um, in a countable language then it has a countable model, hence one with the main natural numbers. Again, what Bernays as it's a definability part Okay, Bernays in marketing this, but really in fitting it into the background funda- foundational dialectic that runs through the otherwise mathematical work, right, Godel and Dür- mathematics, um, repeatedly described the arithmetized completeness theorem as his words, a finite proof theoretic sharpening of Godel's completeness theorem. Okay, so um, we'll come back to what precisely uh, this might mean and what significance you might take it to have um, in the Hilbert program a little bit later on. But um, I just wanna say, um, for those of you who may already know or be anticipating, um, another way of appreciating what the proof of the arithmetic completeness Theorem actually shows is that the star mapping, which takes you from your arbitrary set of non-logical predicates into languages, uh, sorry, set, uh, formulas in the language of first order arithmetic is that the star mapping that's induced, right, from the language of gamma into the language of first order arithmetic provides an interpretation, a proof theoretic interpretation, in fact, in the sense of Tarski, Mistowski and Robinson. So what does this mean? Well, it means um, if a... Uh, We can derive a certain sentence uh, phi from the gamma, then you take a sufficiently strong chunk of first-order arithmetic, PA, first-order piano arithmetic is more than sufficient for this, and you add the formal consistency statement for the gamma to it, then uh, PA plus the conjunction of the formal consistency statement will derive the image under this mapping of the statement star, Um, and so if you happen to be in a particular case, and this is actually what's gonna turn out to be germane for geometry later on, um, where PA say, or even a fragment of PA is already sufficient to prove the consistency in the deductive sense of the axioms, then the star is an interpretation of uh, the axioms already just in the PA without the addition to consistency because it's provable and that's odious. Okay, so um, again, one more quote, trying to fit this into the background foundational dialectic of the Grundlagen der Geometry, um, using an uh, expression, uh, right, uh, that describes a technique, a technical technique um, that, you can understand to sort of be embodied by the arithmetized completeness theorem, but has a much broader and sort of more venerable history um, in the foundations of mathematics, which Bernays calls the method of arithmetization. Um, so this is actually from right at the beginning of the first volume of the gunn Logan durr Mathematics, back in 1934, Bernays is introducing this. Um, so I'll just quickly read this as well. Um, we are forced to investigate the consistency of theoretical systems without uh, considering actuality and thus find uh, ourselves already at the standpoint of formal axiomatics. That's a key word for them. By formal axiomatics, they mean the study of what we would these days call infinitary uh, systems or right, ideal systems to use another one of the Hilbertian buzzwords or non-contentual systems of, for instance, analysis, uh, set theory, but also it's clearly thought geometry and mathematical physics. So formal axiomatics, right, infinitary mathematics. Um, Okay, going on. Now one usually treats this problem, both in uh, geometry and the disciplines of physics, with the method of arithmetization, the objects of the theory represented by numbers or systems of numbers, and the basic relations by equations or inequations, such that that on the basis of the translation, the axioms of the theory turn out either as arithmetical identities or provable statements, or as a system of conditions whose joint satisfiability can be demonstrated by the arithmetical existence statements. Then they go on to call for right a consistency proof for arithmetic and analysis, which of course is what they spend most of their time in the log and actually right mucking around about in light of Genson But um, right, important thing here is um, my claim that the arithmetized completeness theorem should, in some sense, be understood as the technical or mathematical embodiment of this more general uh, method of arithmetication. I'll come back to that. Okay, end of argument. Right for purely historical thesis. One on to a hopefully more interesting argument for. Uh, Thesis two, namely that Frege was correct to maintain that mar- demonstrating the consistency of the set of axioms is as difficult as it can be in a certain precise technical sense, which we're about to start explaining. Okay, so again, here deductive consistency of set of axioms means, right, or it just means deductive consistency, of non-derivability of your favorite contradiction. Um, Right, we can understand this as a general, what we would refer to as decision problem. You give me the gamma, right, Um, I have to determine for you whether we can derive a contradiction from it. Um, Right, Um, I claim and go on to belabor at some length in the paper that Frege identified two ways or dimensions in which this was indeed a difficult problem in some salient pre-theoretical sense. Um, The first of these, um, I've tried to summarize here is as follows. How can we know when the thoughts expressed by the sentences in gamma are subjected to conceptual analysis that the resulting set of sentences um, expressing the analyzed thoughts calls those calls those uh, set of sentences expressing the analyzed thoughts gamma plus is deductively consistent? Okay. Um, by way of example here, remember Frege's lifelong goal of showing that arithmetic was reducible to logic. How did he go about this? Well, he first wanted to write. Uh, treat or analyze uh, state, so-called statements of number in terms of Hume's principle. And then he wanted to uh, write, further analyze the number of operator in terms right, of extensions. And then he got himself into trouble with Basic Law 5. But putting that aside, right. Um, he is telling us that we shouldn't look at the textbook formulation of number theoretic statements as giving, as it were, their true meaning or logical structure. Rather, we have to subject the number theoretic language to what we these days would call conceptual analysis. And then it's only after we have performed the conceptual analysis on the concepts or the, the, the expressions and the concepts corresponding to the expressions that appear in the textbook statements of the principles that we're ultimately able to determine whether the thoughts expressed by the textbook statements are actually consistent or not. So D1, a sort of proxy for just the question, how do we know when we've ever reached the bottom in this kind of uh, order of unpacking conceptual strata? Um, Clear that Frege wanted to apply this, not just to arithmetic, but also to geometry. Okay, this has been widely discussed in the secondary literature on the Frege-Hilbert problem. I think Patty Blanchett has done a very good job of illustrating um, both how uh, central this question is uh, to uh, understanding Frege's perspective, but also arguing that Frege never really provides an answer to it. Um, So I'm going to pass over this here, happy to return to it during the question time um, if you'd like, and focus instead on another dimension uh, of difficulty, which I think you can also give a pretty uh, strong case that Frank also anticipated uh, even right back in the 1890s. Um, And one way of formulating that is just the following. Uh, Given that the derivation of a contradiction from gamma can be arbitrarily long, how can we uniformly determine if we can derive a contradiction uh, from gamma without actually constructing a model, right? In which all of the sentences in gamma are uh, satisfied simultaneously. Okay, so um, he makes this point um, really time and time again. Um, So, here, however, is a passage from the s- first volume of Frege's Grand so, Um, it's a fairly famous one um, where he's talking uh, about this and in the, I think right making the right sort of points about it. Um, this occurs in the long sequence of sections um, where Frege is talking about um, the nature of definitions and also, um, attacking some of his or critiquing some of the views of his formalist interlocutors but putting some of that context aside I'll just read the quote and then uh, dig what I want to do out of it. Um, how do we tell that the properties are not mutually inconsistent? There seems to be no criterion for doing this except the occurrence of the properties in question in one and the same object, right? So in other words that the axioms uh, are satisfied in a model. We've exhibited that and now right we turn on Frege's wry wit or sarcasm or is there perhaps still another way of proving inconsistency? If there were one, it would be of the highest significance. Probably people, would, probably people think that a proof of consistency is superfluous because any inconsistency would be noticed at once. And now, super sarcastic register. What a fine thing if it were so. How simplified proofs uh, would then be. Okay. I'm now going to try to reconstruct the sequence of these moves that's being made here um, in the form of what I will refer to as Frege's trivialization argument. Okay, so here goes. Suppose that there were a general algorithmic method uh, for checking consistency. So in other words, right, you give me a set of axioms gamma, I want to determine whether we can draw the contradiction from it, um, right, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's because it's an algorithm, it has to presumably work through some, right, non-model theoretic means because in all the relevant cases, the models are actually going to turn out to be infinite. So we can't actually, right, in some sense, concretely present them. So I suppose, uh, for sake of argument, there were such a consistency checking, uh, consistency checking algorithm, call it alpha. Okay, then note, right, the following uh, by equivalence. Um, Okay, so um, we have that we can derive phi from gamma if and only if the result of conjoining the negation of uh, phi uh, to gamma allows us to derive a contradiction, right? So everyone, right, just take a moment and make sure that you get that those, the right, left, and right-hand side are in fact just, right, uh, equivalent. They're really ways of writing the same thing. So uh, Frege doesn't say this explicitly, but he clearly notes it. So in this case, um, then it uh, would suffice to uh, check whether a given mathematical statement, uh, psi, for vividness, say, the Riemann hypothesis, is provable from axioms, say ZFC, um, to apply our uh, consistency checking uh, mechanism uh, alpha, to uh, gamma union, uh, not Phi. So in other words, uh, ZFC plus the negation of the Riemann hypothesis. OK. So um, then, Frege right, makes an observation about mathematical practice. Right? Um, in practice, we find it very difficult to determine uh, whether a uh, statement can be derived um, from a given set of axioms. Um, right? Uh, or, for that matter, that it can't be. Right? Just uh, to make. To, 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 actually come up with an independence proof, right, showing non-derivability. And he concretely illustrates this, in fact, precisely um, between sections 143, 144 in the first level of the so with two concrete examples, namely the Pythagorean theorem, the law of quadratic reciprocity from number theory. So he's using those to make the same point I was using the Riemann hypothesis to make, right? So since we find it hard in practice uh, to do this, um, but an algorithm would presume because it's an algorithm would presumably make it easy. Craig, uh then concludes that no such algorithm can exist. Okay, so clearly the non-argument, the argument is non-demonstrative as it stands because just our failure to find such an algorithm up to the present moment doesn't entail its non-existence. But this feeds into a whole bunch of other. Uh, Co- relevant comments that Frege um, makes, um, particularly in some of his later uh, philosophical writing. So, um, and about what makes consistency checking difficult. Um, so, here's a paradigm example. It is completely wrong-headed to imagine that every contradictory contradiction is immediately recognizable. Frequently, the contradiction lies deeply buried and is only discovered by a lengthy chain of inference. Okay. Um, and it's clear, like, deeply buried here isn't uh, at least solely referring to right, our digging down through the conceptual strata and performing conceptual analysis because he's actually calling uh, attention to right the potential right, lengthy chain of inference that would lead us from the gamma to the derivation of a conclusion. Um, history of mathematical logic is I don't, it would be an exaggeration to say that it's littered um, with instances where we've you know somebody's proposed a set of axioms and then later on um, right they were shown to be uh, inconsistent by a deeply varied contradiction. Um, of course, in some sense. We have uh, Frege and the story of Wessel's paradox as uh, our paradigm example of this, probably not there we would say these days deeply buried. But my favorite example of this actually is uh, Church in one of his initial formulations of the lambda calculus. Um, well, that turned out to uh, be inconsistent in the world the lambda calculus at least um, as was shown a couple years later by as that time I think graduate students, um, Kleene and Rosser who um, as Curry later pointed out in uh, his simplification leading to the Curry paradox uh, showed that Church's system was uh, inconsistent via what ran to 162 pages of rather complex derivation. So this problem really does have teeth, um, but then, as uh, hopefully is clear to everyone at this point, um, because of this bi-equivalence, um, this dimension of difficulty that Frege is calling attention to is just equivalent to uh, Hilbert and Ackermann's and Scheindang problem, right? The, the, the decision problem for uh, first-order logic, once we know the soundness and completeness theorems for first-order uh, logic, because, of course, then uh, derivability uh, coincides with validity. Um, okay. Why is this significant to uh, my thesis? Well, um, okay, Um, just do a little bit more unpacking here. Um, So suppose we're considering a finite set of axioms, call it uh, gamma, Um, then we can bundle it all up uh, into a single sentence by just taking its logical conjunction, and then let's define a sentence of first-order logic to be a consistent uh, sentence of first-order logic, just in case we can't derive its negation, Um, right? uh, Just using The definition of derivability or consistency from uh, Hilbert and Ackerman, we've seen already this goes over into a universal statement. So for all derivations in our big inductively defined set of derivations, right, the conclusion of that derivation is not the negation of the sentence. Well, then, via Goodall's method of the arithmetization of syntax, this quantifier over proofs here goes over, of course, into a quantifier over numbers. And of course, this decidable relation goes over to an arithmetically definable uh, proof predicate, say, proofs of FOL, just for proof not from the piano axioms this time, but from uh, pure first-order logic. So uh, this uh, consistency, the consistency of phi is hence expressible in the language of first-order arithmetic um, as what we would now call a pi-01 statement. So in other words, a one with a universal quantifier up front and then a decidable matrix. Um, so once we realize that, then we realize that we can define a set of natural numbers, which I'll just call Con, the set of Gödel numbers of the of consistent se- uh, sentences of first-order logic. Um, that's just a subset of natural numbers. What Church? or sorry, what Turing really did and and Church sort of did in showing the undecidability of the intended problem in 1936 is really to show the following. They really showed that the halting problem could be reduced to the consistency checking problem or just about that. So what they showed or what Turing showed is you give me a Turing machine, say with index i and an input, a natural number x, Um, then there's a computable way of taking that Turing machine and the input and then constructing a first order formula, I'll call it size of IX, um, such that the Turing machine diverges, fails to halt on the input just in case the formula is consistent or other way around, right? Um, The Turing machine halts uh, or converges just in case we can derive the uh, negation of the formula. So uh, again, uh, the gloss of this is that if we could uniformly uh, decide uh, consistency, then we would be able to solve the halting problem, which we know to be a difficult problem in the sense of computability theory, which I'd love to spend more time unpacking, but it's a little bit more than this. Um, It's not just that um, right, we can reduce the halting problem to the consistency checking problem, but what this really shows is that consistency is a complete uh, pi zero, 1 uh, notion or set. We, what this means is it has this definition in terms of a universal quantifier outside, out front of a decidable matrix, but it means that for every pi zero one definable set of natural numbers, so set of natural numbers definable in this way, um, there's a function, uh, a computable function G, right, such that for all natural numbers, x is in the set, um, just in case it's image, g of x is a consistent formula of first order logic. Okay, to tie to top, oh yeah, so, right, per thesis two, this is what I mean, uh, showing that consistency checking as Frege anticipates, and then also Hilbert comes along at this point to realize this is also a hard problem, um, right, is uh, as hard as it can be, um, given the logical form of this definition, in this way in which we measure uh, uh, difficulty in computability theory. Okay, so to very quickly tie one more bow on this and then move on to thesis two, um, I just point out to everyone that the set of uh, pi zero one statements that are true in the standard model arithmetic, right, so the set of true arithmetical statements of this pi zero one form, so in other words, again, a statement that starts for all x, phi of x where the phi uh, can only contain bounded quantifiers say, um, this is itself a uh, pi zero one definable set. Um, And it turns out that a number of famous open questions or previously open questions by coding, say the four color theorem, but still open questions like the Goldbach conjecture, the Riemann hypothesis are formulatable as pi zero one statements. So um, to really write exemplify what Frege seems to have uh, been onto. Um, if we could uh, solve this consistency checking problem, then we could algorithmically uh, solve all these other uh, known open problems in number theory by an algorithm method. And given the tremendous amount of work that we've put into right, resolving these over in some cases, centuries, um, you know, it just seems quite impossible that there couldn't exist such a method. Okay, so that was the argument uh, for thesis two, moving on. Okay, yeah, so now return to my arithmetical hierarchy diagram. Here we go, we've now classified first order consistency checking here as pi zero one, Um, halting, so it's in other words of the same degree in the sense of the arithmetical hierarchy, M one degree precisely as the non-halting problem or as true first order arithmetic. Okay, we're now going to go on to um, model existence, right? And uh, thesis 3 T3. Um, and what does this say? It says Hilbert was correct to maintain that demonstrating the consistency of a model, uh, satisfying a uh, given uh, set of axioms, gamma is as easy as it can be conditional on gamma's deductive consistency. Okay. Um, I think I started to say that this one, uh, maybe T1 was mainly an epistemological problem, right? I mean, Frank and Hilbert both actually very interested in determining whether given sets of axioms were consistent. In fact, this was really one of the major goals of the Grundloggenre geometry, but mainly, perhaps, an epistemological one. Well, T3, this obviously has got both uh, epistemological and an ontological dimension, or maybe obviously has an ontological dimension, but I'm going to say the ontological dimension is tied to an epistemological one. Um, how could you make sense of it? Well, you could, for instance, ask, um, right, we've got uh, a consistent set of sentences. Suppose um, there is a non-model theoretic means of determining that it's consistent, I should say, and, you know, come back, of course, there are such means we now know, uh, contra to uh, Frege's suspicions, um, right? So we've got our, our, our hands on such a sentence. What does it mean to demonstrate the existence of the model? That would be in the sense of maybe what theory could you prove the existence of a model? That might be one question you might ask, um, but you might also ask what does it mean for uh, a model um, right, to exist uh, in, uh, the first place uh, in particular, where you can show mathematically that the axioms don't have any finitary models. And that was the case, as we'll see in a second, that they actually really cared about. Um, a couple ways of attempting to analyze this, I mean, sort of at the first level of conceptual unpacking that you might need to go through in order to, um, right, ultimately give something like a technical analysis of the sort that I ultimately really do. Um, one might be, or you're given the consistency of axioms, um, how complex or difficult, uh, To decide, um, are the sets that would comprise a satisfying model. So you're given the consistent set of axioms, in some sense, the commutants theorem tells you that um, there has to be a model of the axioms. How complicated does that model have to be in terms of the definitions of the non-logical symbols appearing in the signature of gamma? Um, You might also ask the same question about deciding truth in the model. Uh, So in other words, really essentially checking membership, uh, either truth relation or in the arithmetical setting, the same thing as uh, its elementary diagram. And then you might also ask in what kind of theory uh, you could prove the existence of the model. And of course, that's going to be in some ways related to one and two, as you might anticipate. Well, it turns out that what the technical works bear out is all in all three senses, model existence is as easy as it can be in the relevant precise sense. In the interest of time, I'll concentrate on one, but happy to come back to two and three. Um, and again, uh, the, the way you see that this problem is... As teeth, there was really interesting is to consider gamma, where we can actually prove mathematically that well, we can't prove consistency via a finite model because regardless of whether the gamma turns out to be consistent or not, we can actually show by some argument that it can't have any finite models. Um, this was a very important. Uh, Right uh, issue ultimately for Hilbert and Bernays, and I'll just illustrate this by going through a sequence of uh, quotes from Hilbert. The first is sort of the other articulation of the consistency implies existence slogan from right around the turn of the 20th century. This occurring in Hilbert's famous uh, address in Paris, Mathematical Problems, where he essentially formulates the consistency of what we would now call analysis or second uh, second order arithmetic as his second uh, big open problem for the 20th century, um, right? Um, but here, another great right, invocation of consistency applies existence, um, right? Showing that he actually believed it at this time. If it can be proved that the attributes assigned to a concept can ever lead to a contradiction, I say that the mathematical existence of the concept is thereby proved. Okay. Fast forward to perhaps the um, most widely read of uh, Hilbert's papers, um, at least by undergraduate philosophy of math students um, Uber Interlect on the infinite um, from nineteen twenty five um, like all the stuff based on a lecture course or series of lecture courses Hilbert and and in, 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 um, in Göttingen uh, around that time, so this was the form for public consumption so um here, right, uh, and often taken this to be a sort of paradigmatic, um, right, formulation of uh, the Hilbert program and Hilbert and farner perspective. Um, Hilbert discusses geometry at some length here. Uh, and in that context, he says the following, Euclidean geometry as a structure and a system of notions is consistent in itself, but this does not imply that it applies to reality. The final, and this is jumping ahead several pages, a lot of interesting stuff in between. The final result then is nowhere in, nowhere is the infinite realized. It is neither present in nature nor admissible as a foundation of a rational thinking, a remarkable harmony between being and thought. Okay, that's from uh, 1925. Um, Fast forward uh, a couple years, but really essentially contemporaneous with uh, the Hilbert and Ackerman textbook. Um, This is what they say uh, about the uh, case where we can show, oh yeah, I should also say, um, small chunk of the Hilbert axioms are are such that you can show that they're not satisfied in uh, a finite model. Okay, Um, so uh, they're talking about this case uh, specifically in the Hilbert and Ackerman textbook um, when they say the following, this problem of proving consistency whose solution is of fundamental importance for mathematics is incomparably more difficult than the question dealt with here. What they had just been talking about was the consistency of pure first order logic which they demonstrate by showing that the axioms are satisfied in a model with a one element domain. So then they move on, they wanna move on um, to consider the case of mathematical axioms, like the geometrical axioms, right, or the uh, axioms of analysis or set theory. Um, And in this case, they say, the mathematical axioms actually assume an infinite domain of individuals, and they are connected with the concept of infinity, uh, sorry, and there are connected with the concept of infinity, the difficulty and paradoxes, which play a role in the discussion of the foundations of mathematics. Okay, so quite a transition, I would say, right, from Hilbert glibly declaring um, consistency implies existence, but then, right, about 25 years later, having some genuine misgivings, right? It could be that the Euclidean axioms are deductively consistent, but then because they have an infinite model, we've become suspicious of infinity in mathematics. Um, maybe consistency doesn't follow, at least ipso facto, um, from consistency, or existence doesn't follow, at least ipso facto, from consistency. Okay. So um, now moving right towards um, T actually arguing for T3, the precise analysis of um, uh, model existence being as easy as it can be. Um, okay, so um, right, putting Frege's doubts aside, um, in fact, Hilbert along with his collaborators did make, Really substantial progress um, in developing um, non-model-theoretic techniques for proving consistency in the 19 teens, 20s, and 30s. Um, these techniques now go by the names of the epsilon substitution method, Herbrand's theorem, and cut elimination. Um, I have many interesting details, which will be spared here, um, but I will point out or remind everyone that um, these are proof-theoretic techniques. They are in some sense, finitary, you can prove that they work, for instance, um, in relevant cases, in uh, primitive recursive arithmetic. Um, but there are big problems applying them to sort of our favorite infinitary theories already, right? PA, we can't just prove the consistency of that by plane cut elimination. We also need um, right uh, ordinal analysis, right? And transfinite induction on epsilon naught to get, get some consistency proof uh, to go through. But then really, difficulties of a, much more uh, significant kind when we try to move from first order arithmetic um, and get a consistency, a proof theoretic consistency proof for second order arithmetic or analysis, and then perhaps even greater ones when we try to move on to set theory. But nonetheless, um, there are some instances where the um, proof theoretic non tech Uh, non-model theoretic techniques really do work and really do allow us to prove the consistency of one mathematical theory in another. And a paradigm instance of this, and I think that this in some sense is well known in the folklore sense, but doesn't seem to be particularly well known in the explicit sense, is geometry. So let delta be uh, some Boolean combination of Hilbert's base theory, HP, and then some of the continuity axioms and um, the, say, plus continuum hypothesis or its negation. So, in other words, uh, at least a decent uh, chunk of the, or subset of the consistency proofs that, uh, independence proofs that Hilbert gave in Grundlagen geometry, let delta be one of those theories. Well, it turns out that the formal consistency statement for those theories is indeed provable in piano arithmetic. This is straightforward Forward to see from the perspective of contemporary reverse mathematics essentially because you can build models of these theories computably working over the base theory known as RCA 0 by just observing that you can prove the existence of the algebraic closure of the ordered field of uh, rational numbers and from there go about constructing your models then you also have to do a, to really get the formal consistency statement approval you have to do, also do a, a formalized cut elimination argument and then you have to invoke the pi zero one conservativity of of the second order theory RC not over PRA. Sorry for those of you for whom all of that was just gibberish, um, but I think in some sense it should be better known. Um, Again, none of these theories have finite models. So we now ask ourselves, and this was really the question that I'm pretty sure Paul Bernays was asking himself by the uh, mid 1930s, if we really put ourselves in uh, the planetary standpoint of Hilbert and Bernays, so there's a foundational perspective, does consistency uh, continue to apply existence? And what I wish to argue before I get to um, right, uh, T3, right, that consistency or proving consistency given existence is as easy as it can be, that really comes out of these technical considerations. I just wanna very quickly show that in some sense, even though the models of these theories have to be infinite, um Right, uh because the consistency statement is provable in a uh, weak base theory like p r a there's a sense in which you can understand the formalization of gödel 's completeness theorem in the form of Bernay's arithmetic completeness theorem as delivering what you might call finite modes of presentation of the relevant arithmetical models, so if you just go through uh The sequence of steps you would imagine, um, and then apply the arithmetized completeness theorem uh, to these sets of geometric axioms. Working over some arithmetical theories, right, first-order theory, even PA or a fragment thereof, um, what you end up building is structures that look like this. They have domain natural numbers, and then everything else, right, intuitive of the points, of sorts, and lines, are interpreted as sets of natural numbers of the appropriate arity. Um, so, in particular, the set of points, when it was for Hilbert, uh, ordered pairs of real numbers. Now, in these arithmetical models, so-called, just become sets of natural numbers, right? Simpliciter. Um, so you you could very much uh, see Frege reiterating his critiques, right? Points are spatial things, right? They're not natural numbers in particular. So um, on the other side of this coin, um, you can also understand Hilbert and Bernays as uh, taking the uh, linguistic entities that you get out of this process by arithmetized completeness, uh, which end up being interpretations of all of these, um, right, uh, the uh, non-logical, Predicates in the, in, in the signature uh, of, that we were talking about originally for geometry um, as uh, giving you some kind of right, presentation. You might even call it a finite mode of presentation of the infinitary model um, in the sense that the predicates themselves in the language of arithmetic, they're just formulas. But then if we were to interpret them in the familiar manner in the standard model of arithmetic, we'd then get extensions for the sorts and the uh, non-logical relations. Bernays, interestingly, maybe going all the way back to the 20s, if you believe Charles Parsons, but certainly by the 1950s, was uh, using observations like this um, seemingly to advocate for a kind of, what he refers to as relative existence, where um, there are grades of mathematical realism or Platonism. Bernays famously is the person who introduced the term Platonism with lowercase p to philosophy of mathematics in his um, famous 1935 paper on Platonism in mathematics. He's talking about relative grades of Platonism. The weakest of those is the acceptance of the natural numbers as a completed totality, along with uh, the acceptance of excluded metal uh, applicable to uh, mathematical formulas. Right, for sort of mathematical formulas. Um, you can also look at this as a kind of proto-structuralism where rather than reducing everything to, to sets, right, as certain forms of set theoretic structuralist wants to do, right, um, we're reducing everything to numbers, but then what are our mathematical objects? Well, uh, they're just positions in these number theoretic structures. Something can perhaps be said along these lines. Some people, Wilfred Sieg as well, but also Stuart Shapiro had in fact said these things. Um, I'm happy to return to talk about that in the question period as well. But in any event, Back to my dialectic, um, and I know I'm now getting short on time, so I will try to wrap things up as quickly as possible. Um, so, after proving the arithmetic Completeness Theorem in the second volume of the Grundlagen Mathematics, Mathematics, uh, Bernays in fact, did ask the question, right, the following question, well, uh, We've got a consistent, say, just single formula in some first order language. It's got an arithmetical model, right? One not only with domain N, but definable predicates that we've just been talking about. How complicated are those those predicates have to be? In particular, uh, can the predicates always correspond, when you take their extension in the standard model, correspond to computable sets, um, or as we know, computable will correspond to so delta zero one definable, I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, so we formulated this question as an open question, right? And um, well, uh, why would one care about this? Well, very quickly, if you follow this line about the predicates being something like modes and presentation of the infinite models, then if you also knew that the predicates um, were computable, or decidable, then that would also mean that the definition of the predicates um, came along with algorithms for actually uh, determining, right? Even if you were just reasoning in some small fragment of rhythmic, what went on in the models that you were in this relative sense saying existed. And it would also mean that the extension of the predicates would be absolute with respect to potential non standard interpretations in the arithmetical language. come back to that if he wants to. But in any event, um, Bernays asked this question, um, whether uh, every uh, consistent formula is not only satisfiable in an arithmetical model, but one uh, was, as he put it, effectively satisfiable. So, satisfiable in one uh, where all the predicates got uh, computable interpretations. Um, this turned out to be the inspiration for decent amount of research in mathematical logic right after the Second World War, leading to the following concisely statable um, Result of Michael Rabin, which sort of settled the issue for our purposes. Um, there exists a finitely axiomatizable theory. In fact, it turns out to be good old Bernays set theory without the axiom of infinity, but of course you could add the axiom of infinity if you too if you wanted it. Um, so um, and you can write that's a finitely axiomatizable so write down as a single sentence. So um, there exists such a theory that is, is not effectively satisfiable, has no computable models. In fact, there's no computable the innumerable models, is what he actually showed. Why do we care about this? Well, historically Historically, this theory, GB without the action of infinity, it's a theory of Bernays' construction, and he showed in an 1842 paper that it uh, was just the right theory for formalizing analysis, or sufficient for formalizing analysis through the bolzano Weierstrass theorem. Um, it's very similar to the theory we now know as aca not in reverse mathematics, so this doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, but in any event, right? Bernays' question, right, uh, if phi uh, is satisfiable, is it effectively satisfiable, it gets answered in the negative. Um, okay, so now finally on to to, to use my slogan, the ease of existence. Remember that uh, Goodall's completeness theorem says the following in the case of single sentences, right? If we can't derive the negation of phi, so phi is a consistent statement of first-order logic, then there exists a model in which it's satisfied. Prima facie, this is what we would now call a sigma-1-1 one, one statement. It says that a certain set, namely a model with a set with some structure on it, in other words, a model exists. The theorem itself, um, until you do any unpacking, doesn't give you any bound in the complexity of the set, like how hard it is to define or to compute. So, um, and we've just seen that we can't always get a computable, or as it turns out, delta zero one definable model, but then there are, are results that soon follow that essentially give us a fairly tight bound in what we can get. The first of these do, um, I think, credit to Christel Mustaschi-Hassenjager, um, maybe also Queenie you could cite, um, says the following, every consistent computably axiomatized theory, certainly single sentences fall in that category, has an arithmetical model, right? That's what we've been talking about, all of whose relations are delta zero 02 definable. I'll remind you what that, or tell you what that means in just a second, but it's just the next level up in the arithmetical hierarchy. Um, and then um, so that provides, as it were, a lower bound, or in some sense, it gives you the simplest possible definition. And then to make that bound tight, um, philosophy's very own, Hilary Putnam proved the following: there exists a single formula of for first-order logic which is not satisfied in any modules relations, are sigma zero one pi zero one, uh, definable. So in other words, the delta zero two definability is optimal in some sense. And then right here, cliniate, arithmetical hierarchy picture, and I think on, I hope just the next slide, yeah, picture on the next slide, um, right, delta zero one definable, this is the same thing as computable. It means there's a set of natural numbers that has both an existential definition, decidable matrix, and a universal one. Um, you can think of those as means of deciding and, right, membership in the set and then deciding that a natural number isn't in the set. Um, sigma zero one definable, that's sort of the next level up going to the left. Um, that corresponds to computably a numeral. We can list off the members of the set, but we can't necessarily decide membership in the set. Oh yeah, primes, right? Uh, the set of prime numbers, that's a paradigmatic computable double zero one definable set. The halting problem is a paradigmatic example of a sigma zero one definable set, which is not uh, pi zero one definable. So, computably enumerable, but not computable. Um, pi zero one, well, we've met that one before. That's the uh, difficulty or the complexity of the set of consistent statements of first order logic. Delta zero 02 definable is then just, as it were, one level up when you get one quantifier alternation in defining your set, either of the existential universal form or the universal existential set. This turns out to have other nice computational characterizations, for instance, in terms of limit uh, computability or trial and error computability, as Haley Putnam called it. And what the Kleene hierarchy theorem says is the picture that I'm going to show you does not collapse. In other words, the hierarchy is... uh, Proper, and then the way computability theorists and reverse mathematicians, I guess, also look at this is in some sense the uh, hierarchy is showing us something about the difficulty of deciding membership in the sets, which can be spelled out in uh, various computational ways. And so we've now classified a whole bunch of problems. Um, in particular, um, we've now showed, right, in addition to the other stuff, that the um, the uh, the diagram, what we would call the the atomic diagram of the simplest model of any uh, consistent computable theory, is delta zero two. So, that's what I mean in saying that, um, right, distance given consistency is as easy as it can be in this sense in which we analyze difficulty and computability theory. Mathematics. Okay, summarizing quickly my own conclusions, and then yes, I know I'm over time getting to the conc- uh, the genuine conclusion of the talk. Um, right, I really have argued that because of the completeness theorem, consistency does imply existence in mathematics. Um, I've also argued that Hilbert and Bernays, even by their own finitist lies, should, and at least in Bernays' case, I think ultimately did come to accept this because of the arithmetic completeness theorem. Um, and I also suggest that the following illustrates how if you want to use a buzzword, something like the it's about ontological commitment, aren't just about the cardinality of the objects we're talking about, but also in some um, right sense, also about their complexity. Um. And that's really what I care about talking about myself. But then um, I see uh, perhaps maybe some people in the audience are going to want um, me to address the following uh, elephant that um, they have already realized is in the room. Um, namely, that the completeness theorem allows us, uh, one might say, to purchase uh, existence far too cheaply. Um, this is illustrated, right, paradigmatically by the existence of non-standard models that it generates. So we can, by Goodall's incompleteness theorem first, or second incompleteness theorem, first observe that, um, right, if PA is consistent, then PA plus the negation of the consistency statement is existent, uh, apply the, uh, the uh, standard to that, get a model of PA plus not com PA, has to be non-standard. Of course, the constructions that I've just been uh, talking about also get you uh, delta zero, uh, arithmetical models, right, countable models of set uh, of C, plus your favorite large cardinal hypotheses where the membership position is delta zero two definable. And so the challenge that I anticipate is, do we really want to grant the same sort of existence to uh, structures uh, uh, of the of these structures. And maybe by, uh, instead of talking about Shapiro saying no to this, we don't, and introducing his coherence notion, right, he's going to take the, that to be the um, criterion, um, right, or the barrier from existence in mathematics rather than inductive consistency, I'll just move on to reading the final quote from Paul Bernays um, that I wanted to get to, um, right, um, and my cheeky um, Uh, title as well, Minding the Gap Between Consistency and Existence, which is just, in some sense, to suggest to you that uh, Bernays was a pretty smart, well-informed guy between maths and philosophy and anticipated a lot of the stuff in the 1950s. The common excess, so here goes to the quote. Um, Oh yeah, and the the quote is from a paper called um, Mathematical Existence and Consistency that in German. Um, the common acceptance of the explanation of mathematical existence in terms of consistency is no doubt due in considerable part to, tart to the circumstances that on the basis of the simple cases one has in mind, one forms an unduly simplistic idea of what consistency or the compatibility of the conditions is, one thinks of the compatibility of conditions as something the complex of conditions wears on its sleeve, as it were, such that one uh, need only sort out the content of the conditions clearly in order to see whether they are in agreement or not. In fact, however, the role of the conditions is they affect each other in functional use and combination, and here's my favorite line, the result obtained in this way is not contained, sorry, the result obtained in this way is not contained as a constituent part of what is given through the conditions. It is probably the erroneous idea of such inheritance that gave gave rise to the view of the tautological character of mathematical propositions. And I'll just close by saying that you all know a paradigm example of this. Um, the axioms of piano arithmetic, say, um, are computable, right? And there are infinitely many of them, but it's easy to decide whether something is uh, an axiom. Um, the uh, theorems of piano arithmetic, famously, are computably enumerable, but not computable. So sigma zero one plus that delta zero one. So already the theorems are not contained in the axioms. But the simplest model of piano arithmetic, as we've seen, is delta zero uh, uh two-definable, right, or its elementary diagram really is delta zero two-definable, but there would also be a delta zero two-definable model of the whole uh, elementary diagram, not just the atomic diagram. But then, of course, true arithmetic, set of statements true in the standard model, is... Um, Uh, is delta one one, but uh, so in other words, properly above the arithmetical hierarchy, um, but not sigma zero n for any n. And um, so this sort of illustrates what Bernays is talking about that, um, right, the model ain't contained in the axioms. And this is uh, something that I think computability theory allows us to see in these vivid terms. Um, Similar, uh, but more interesting things can actually also be said uh, about in fact, the very same systems of geometry that Hubert was investigating back in 1899 due to a, I don't know, moderately well known, maybe little known uh, result of uh, Martin Ziegler from 1982 that shows us that many of the uh, theories that Hubert was considering, um, perhaps I think contrary to expectation are undecidable. They're not uh, essentially undecidable because they're sub-theories of Tresky's theory of real closed fields, but they are still uh, undecidable themselves. So in some sense, they also don't determine um, what's true in model satisfying them. Okay, um, I will stop here and I guess I can sh- I can stay out. I'll stop there on another of my diagrams of all of these hierarchies together. Okay, um, I really, I, I'm sorry. I, Thank you for indulging me for going over time and not interrupting, I'm very sorry for that. I'm now happy to. um, If you'd like, even start the questions immediately.